0: Change the world, change the world, change the world can, We can change the world, we can change the
1: world, change the world This is the Santita Jackson Show
2: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. My name is Jonah Karsh. I'm the political lead for If Not Now Chicago, an organization of American Jews fighting Israel's apartheid system. Grateful to be in the host chair today, filling in for Ms. Jackson, who's getting a well-deserved week off. Today is Friday, December 29th, 2023. You're listening to WCPT 820, America's largest progressive talk radio station, and AM 950 Radio, Minneapolis-St. Paul, the voice of progressive Minnesota, and live on the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel, Facebook, and Twitter as well. Uh... We are excited today to be talking uh, with some great guests, including the great Peter Beinart, editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, um, and Elena Gormley from the Treatment Not Trauma Coalition about mental health justice in Chicago. Um, But first, let's get to some headlines Uh, The state of Maine's secretary of state, Shanna Bellows, ruled Thursday that former President Donald Trump is ineligible to appear on the state's primary election ballot under the 14th Amendment because of his role in the January 6th insurrection. Later yesterday, California's secretary of state joined Michigan's Supreme Court in making the opposite decision, while the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling that Trump is ineligible for that state's ballot has been appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Israel's brutal attack on Gaza continues. Al Jazeera reports on site from the southernmost city of Rafah in Gaza that an Israeli airstrike hit a residential building near the Kuwait specialty hospital, killing 20 people, most of them women and children. Meanwhile, at least 35 Palestinians were reportedly killed in bombings targeting two refugee camps in central Gaza. And the head of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency said the Israeli army fired at one of the organization's aid convoys driving on a designated safe road in northern Gaza. This comes as the organization warns that 40 percent of Gaza residents are at risk of famine. Over 21,500 Palestinians in Gaza and around 1,300 Israelis have died since the war began on October 7th. A U.S. district court judge in Georgia ruled that the state's newly drafted congressional maps comply with the previous court order to create a black majority district in areas where black voters power was being diluted. But get this in complying with the order, the Republican controlled legislature decided to cut up an existing majority black district. Which maintains the state's projected 9 to 5 Republican advantage in a state that has two Democratic senators and which President Biden won. Voting rights groups have said that they will appeal the decision. Weather in Chicago, it's wet this morning. Be careful out on the roads. We have a high of 41 degrees with a chance of more rain later in the morning. And in Minneapolis, partly cloudy with a high of 35. In sports, the Pacers beat the Bulls 120-104 last night in Chicago. The Minnesota Timberwolves are number one in the Western Conference and continued their hot streak with a 118-110 victory over the Dallas Mavericks. Tonight at 7, the Chicago Blackhawks will face the Dallas Stars in Dallas. And Saturday at 1, it'll be the Minnesota Wild and the Winnipeg Jets from Minnesota. In football on Sunday, Bears-Falcons in Chicago, and the Sunday night game at 7.20 is Vikings versus Packers in Minnesota. And now uh, I'm extremely grateful to have... Rabbi Salem Pierce joining me this morning. We usually have on the Santita Jackson Show a segment called The Good News, often featuring a pastor giving some uh, religious words of wisdom. After all the bad news we just gave, it would be great to have some good news. And of course, I'm Jewish, so I thought I would have a rabbi on and am grateful to be joined by Rabbi Salem Pierce, who is the director of spirituality at the Gold Ring Woldenberg. Did I get that right? Institute of Southern Jewish Life in Mississippi. How are you doing, Rabbi Salem?
3: I'm doing well. Thanks, Jonah, and thanks for having me on.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for being on. And you have some words of Torah for us today?
3: I do. Um, as you know, the um, we, um, in the Jewish tradition, uh, study a weekly portion um, of Torah every week, um, and this week we are at the very end of the book of Genesis um, in a in a Torah portion uh, named for the first significant word um, via he in it, um, which means and he lived um, and um i just wanted to focus for a moment on the uh, actually the very very end um of the portion and of the book of genesis um joseph's death now that may not immediately sound uplifting uh but there's a there's a really wonderful key moment of hope there uh joseph um our ancestor who of course as many people know um, was born in what was then the land of Canaan. Um, was sold into slavery uh, by his brothers and ended up rising to power um, in uh, what was
2: uh, what is what was known then as Egypt. Um, if you could and, hold on one second, Rabbi, yes, we're hearing from some listeners yes. that we're not getting any sound coming from oh, you. Oh, okay, um, okay. Some technical difficulties early on here on the Santita Jackson show, but thanks everyone for joining okay. us. And I want to make sure our listeners can hear your words of Torah. Um, hey. Give us one second to figure this out okay. here.
3: Okay, no problem. Uh, they're not hearing yeah. on the live stream.
2: Yeah, we're not. We're not. We're not hearing on the live stream. And I got a text as well that that uh, Rabbi Salem wasn't audible. Uh, maybe okay. should we should we try again with you just speaking up a little bit and see if that helps?
3: Yeah. Sure. I can sure. definitely talk louder.
2: Yeah. Just just continue oh. what you were saying you were talking okay. about. Uh, okay. For the listeners, she's okay. talking about Parshat Viahi in the book of Genesis.
3: Yes. Yeah, so At the very end. Um, so Joseph um, has nice. made it from, uh, uh, from the land of his birth all the way uh, to Egypt.
0: Sorry.
3: And um, is now facing his death after a very long life. Um. And he tells his brothers that he um, he wants to be um, his wants to be eventually buried in the land of his birth. And this is just an incredible moment of faith, uh, because right now everyone is living um, in the land of Egypt. He brought his family down during famine, um, and. Uh, they, they all came to join him there um, after, the re- after they reconciled. And we learn that he is buried in Egypt, but he tells his brothers he wants his uh, bones to be later interred um, in the, the, at, um, the land of his birth. So this is a really incredible piece um, of Torah to me because I think that um, it requires so much faith uh, to know that God's promise, uh, that, the, that the people, uh, the Israelites, will eventually um, make it to the land of Canaan, um, and uh, that they—and um, we do know that Moses later does, in fact, bring Joseph's bones up out of, out of Egypt— into the land of Canaan, um, so I think it's an incredible moment of faith on Joseph's part, but also um, a reminder to all of us to be the ancestor um, that would inspire this kind of behavior. That four hundred years later—that's we know how long—that's how long the slavery in Egypt lasts. More than four hundred years later, um, Joseph's um descendants would bring his bones out of egypt um so this is a really beautiful i think um moment for all of us to reflect on wherever we are either as people who have descendants or who will have descendants or as people who are acting right now um in power um and knowing that um you know that having faith in the, in the future. As my uh, teacher, Rabbi Shai Held, holds um, the real lesson of the exodus um, from, uh, from Egypt is that there is no status quo that can't be overturned. Um, and I think that's um, a really important lesson for those of us today who um, are having, um, you know, having the, the status quo is a very harsh reality
2: yeah the status quo is you, you, what did you, can you repeat what you said about the status quo? No, yes. there's no status quo that can't be overturned, is that right?
3: Overturned? Yeah, and that's the real lesson of the exodus, that says that rabbi Rabbi Shai held. Um and um I, I just love that. Um, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Rabbi fine. Salem, for your time on the show. Um, and we got we got some of this figured out, I hope, as we move okay, forward. Thanks, so thanks, everybody too. on the live stream for bearing with us. And, and we'll and we'll try to get the, the phone audio working soon. All right.
4: <laughs>
3: All right. Have a good day.
2: All right. Bye bye. Thanks, Rabbi Say Bye. And uh, we're also every day excited to be joined uh, by registered nurse, uh, Dr. Shanina Knighton, who is an infection prevention specialist. Uh, Stand by for a moment. She's on the line. And just as we think about uh, the devastation that has been visited upon the people of Gaza in the wake of devastation that was visited upon the people of Israel on October 7th, our view in, if not now, Chicago, is that we have perpetuated cycles of violence, cycles that encourage uh, Palestinians and Israelis, um, and Israelis in particular to view Palestinians as a group of people that they must keep unsafe in order for the Jewish people, in order for people in Israel to be safe. And if not now, we reject that equation. We believe in a vision of collective liberation and understand that Israel's apartheid system that says that Jews have rights on the land, that Palestinians do not, uh, that Palestinians who have long and hard history uh, in the land of Israel, in Palestine, who were kicked off of their lands in the year 1948, uh, during the founding of the State of Israel, who are not able to return to those homes and who live unequally. We believe and if not now, that we actually can create a world of equality, justice, and a thriving future for all, and that that not only the Palestinian future for liberation, but the Jewish future for our own soul, for our own safety, depends on that as well. Producer Henry is working on getting Dr. Knighton on the line, Um, but as we move forward on this Friday, on this very last Santita Jackson show of 2023, we are excited to be joined in just a second by Dr. Shanina Knighton, um, who we hope to be reaching in just one moment, but let's talk a little bit more um, about some of the news coming out of Georgia with this gerrymandering case. Um, For years, um, the Voting Rights Act had to rectify this. Uh, Black voters in the United States have had their votes diluted. or have not been allowed to vote in an equal, equitable, just and fair fashion. Um, And the newest iteration of that since the Voting Rights Act, uh, now they say, okay, you have to give black people the full right to vote. You have voter suppression and you have gerrymandering where you draw the congressional districts such that black voters and voters of color are underrepresented. We know that those voters tend to vote as a block for progressive change, often for Democrats. And that uh, dilutes the power of black voters Um, and the Supreme Court has chipped away gradually at all of the different ways uh, that uh, the Voting Rights Act can be enforced, uh, ruling that uh, partisan gerrymandering is not justiciable at the court. But now with racial gerrymandering, uh, that is still a place where voters and uh, civil rights groups can challenge in the state of Georgia voters appealed to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court and said that the newly drawn maps diluted the black vote. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed and said that they needed to draw a new district um, and that the areas where black voters votes were being diluted needed to become majority black districts. However, what we saw happen was that the Republican-controlled legislature in the state of Georgia, of course, this is a legislature that also only exists because of gerrymandering in the first place. Um, That majority, because this is a state that President Biden won, this is a state that's trending blue, they created congressional districts um, that continue to dilute That black vote, they moved the majority, existing majority black district into a new majority black district and cut up the existing district to maintain the nine to five uh, Republican advantage. This in a state that uh, President Biden won and that has two Democratic senators. Um, This is a travesty. This is uh, a violation of the principle of one person, one vote, a violation of the principle that uh, black voters deserve representative government in the United States. And um, we hope um, that, that uh, as this case is appealed, as a district court judge ruled, that this newly drawn gerrymander, which only creates a new majority black district, um, but gets rid of a previous one, that that map uh, is not legal And we hope that black voters in Georgia will have the opportunity to have representative government. Okay, we we made it happen. Dr. Shanina Knighton, uh, registered nurse, is on the line. She's with us every morning. Dr. Knighton, uh, I'm not sure if we've ever met personally before, but it's a pleasure to be hearing from you. I've enjoyed your segments and I want to know as we move into the new year, what's on your mind today?
5: Good morning. So, I am going to keep it nice, simple, short, and sweet and just remind people that basic infection prevention and control practices still prevail. Um, there are still a lot of things that are going on right now today in the world, and just reminding people that stress is a real thing, and if we do not take care of our bodies, then long story short, our immune systems are lowered as a result of stress as a result of eating inappropriate foods as a result of not exercising and releasing you know the bad cortisols and endorphins and things that occur when we are up under pressure so we do know as we're closing out the end of the year people's finances may be challenged because of the holidays there's been layoffs. there's been a significant amount of things that have been occurring so just want to remind people to make sure that they're eating nutrient-dense foods that is going to boost their immune system, remind people on top of eating foods that are going to boost their immune system, making sure that they're offsetting negative energy, you know, that occurs within the body that does lead to a lower immune system. So if you are consuming, let's say, a lot of sugar as we're going into the new year, which can include alcohol, it's reminding you that for every 75 grams of sugar, the immune system is lower for five hours. If that continues to build up, just knowing that as it builds up, if, let's say, two hours in and you've had another, let's say, 50 grams of sugar, then that first 75 has not left and it will continue to build up in your system and lower your immune system. So just reminding individuals that sugar is a big part of a lower immune system. So be aware of how much you take. It's very easy to do. If you start the morning, let's say, with a cup of coffee and a pastry by lunchtime, which three or four hours later you're eating a PB&J or you're eating some sort of sandwich or another pastry, it's very easy to add up. So just being aware of your sugar intake and how that lowers the immune system
2: yeah and, and and you're a healthcare provider. I was reading the other day that we're seeing uh, COVID numbers almost as high as they've been for uh, the entire pandemic. Um, it seems fortunate that with the vaccines that we have that the the casualty rates from that uh, you know morbidity and mortality have gone down. But what are you seeing on the front lines um, there as well?
5: So the thing is, is mortality and morbidity rates may be going down, but every life is still viable and it's still important. And the thing is, is as we're facing different strains, as we're embarking upon other illnesses, so yes, someone may have received the COVID-19 vaccine, but that does not protect them against influenza. That does not protect against the common cold. It does not protect against pneumonia. It does not protect against other respiratory illnesses or bacterial illnesses that can occur. And so, yes, the numbers are dropping. However, for individuals that have other chronic conditions, it is still wreaking havoc, which means that there are still complications that can occur. And it's just reminding people that even if it lowers the, let's say, severity, it lowers the morbidity rate, The fact is, is that still if individuals are getting sick, there are people with weakened immune systems that cannot withstand even getting COVID, even if they are vaccinated, because their immune system may not be sufficient enough, even with being vaccinated to withstand the the symptoms that would have been more severe but are still severe even with them being vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So just reminding individuals that if you are ill, if you are at risk of let's say being around a lot of people, just be aware of who you're around that you care about that potentially you can make ill that may not necessarily survive. If we're not talking about COVID, influenza, or one or the other illnesses bringing up vaccines in particular, there's a reminder that vaccines do wear off. And so, for example, if you get the flu vaccine September, October, it has, let's say, about a seven-month efficacy rate, which means that after every single month, then the effectiveness of the vaccine drops off. As you continue to make it through, let's say that time frame, that's why there's a specific time of the year where they recommend that you get the flu vaccine, which would be, let's say that season of between September and November. So it has adequate time in order for it to be able to work before it's not wearing off inside of the body. So I do just wanna remind people that it's not a fix of a one dollar br you can still get sick outside of that time frame. So a vaccine does not protect you all through the year. As time goes on it does wear off and they do have them in place as a prediction of what the illness will be for that coming season. And we get those predictions based off of, let's say, what Australia is doing, who seasons are always one season ahead of ours. So for example, when we're in winter, they're already in spring. So if some illness is occurring for them in spring, it's a helpful prediction of us to understand what we may encounter as we're getting ready to go into our spring. So just a reminder that yes, they do wear off because that's what vaccines do. So you still must stay vigilant with infection prevention and control practices, making sure that you're careful about what you're putting in your body.
2: Well, thank you for that public health guidance, Dr. Knighton. And as we head into the new year with these rising numbers, uh, we appreciate you coming on and giving us some advice about how we can keep ourselves safe. You heard it here, folks. Make sure that you're watching your sugar intake because that does suppress your immune system. And make sure that you're up to date on your vaccines. Thanks again, Dr. Knighton. Pleasure to have you. More of the Santita Jackson show in just a second.
1: This is the Santita Jackson
2: Show. everybody and welcome back to the Santita Jackson show on WCPT AM 820 Chicago and 950 Radio AM the voice of progressive Minnesota my name is Jonah Karsh i'm the political lead with if not now chicago which is an organization of american jews working to end us support for israel's apartheid system and move towards a future for justice and equality for all Israelis and Palestinians. You can join us in on the conversation at 773-763-9278. That's seven seven three seven 763 It is my first time hosting, so can't guarantee we'll have you on, but please call in. We want to hear what you have to say. And uh, I am so excited today uh, to be joined by a good friend of mine. Uh, my background organizing on this Israel-Palestine issue is that when I left my hometown of Evanston, Illinois, to study jazz piano at the University of Miami in Florida, I was immediately struck by how different the conversation in the Jewish community was at the University of Miami around Israel and Palestine than it was in my hometown where I grew up in my Jewish community where I grew up. Um, And I can only imagine then uh, how that right-wing conversation must have felt to a Palestinian student on campus, the invisibility that Palestinians at the University of Miami and on many campuses around the country deal with. We talk so much about uh anti-Semitism on campus. And don't get me wrong, there is often anti-Semitism on campuses. It needs to be addressed. It needs to be condemned. um, And we need to work in solidarity to solve it. But there's also anti-Palestinian racism on our campuses as well. And that's something that we need to talk about in the same breath. And I'm so excited to have a friend of mine that I met from the University of Miami, Ramsey Shahada. He's a Palestinian-American student, a senior at the University of Miami, and the co-founder of the Arab Students Union. How are you doing, Ramsey?
6: Hi, Jonah. Thank you for having me on.
2: Yeah, Good. it's so, so great to have you today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And, and uh, I just want to give it over to you, if you could just tell us a little bit um, about your background, your upbringing, what it meant to you from a young age to be a Palestinian-American in the United States.
6: Uh, yeah, well, um, I was born in South Florida, Um I spent most of my time growing up either uh, in the U.S., kind of sort of between the U.S. and between the West Bank, Palestine. My family comes from uh, a small but ancient village near Jerusalem and Ramallah. Um, it, it hasn't always been easy growing up uh, Palestinian uh, in America, but um, I think uh, more recently I'm starting to see that uh i have more support than um i i was aware of
2: yeah and and can you talk about uh wh- which which part of the west bank is your family from you know so many palestinians talk about the nakba the founding of 1948 in which 750,000 palestinians were displaced um was that was yeah. that an experience that your family went through
6: well um some of my family so Uh, The majority of my family comes from a village in the West Bank that survived the Nakba thankfully, but my grandfather on my mother's side did come from Haifa, uh, a city in present-day Israel um, that was partially ethnically cleansed. Um, But I do have some relatives that were managed to flee to from Haifa to Nazareth, um, another uh, now Israeli city. Um, and so I do have relatives that are Palestinian citizens of Israel. But mm-hmm. for the most part, we are West Bank residents. And
2: and what, and what what is your experience like when you go to travel to Israel in the West Bank? Are you able to fly into... So when I went to Israel for the first time, I'm Jewish. Um, there's a law in Israel called the Law of Return that says that any Jewish person in the world can... Go to Israel and become a citizen on day one. Meanwhile, we have Palestinians who were kicked out of the land in 1948, who who are not allowed to return. This, to me, right. is is somewhat fundamentally unjust. And when I went to Israel, I was just able to fly right into David Ben Gurion Airport. Is that is that the experience that you've had, or or uh, as a Palestinian? No. no. So tell us about that.
6: <laughs> um, while my Jewish friends could easily. Um, get on a plane from Miami International Airport and fly directly to Tel Aviv. Um, growing up, me and my family would actually have to take a flight from Miami to uh, either Istanbul um, or another connecting airport, fly to Istanbul, take another flight from Istanbul to Amman, Jordan, and have to drive uh, through this uh not not the best condition. You'd have to go on a bus, drive through the Jericho Desert about an hour until we get into the West Bank, have to go through Israeli security. Um, it would be about like a day or a two day process uh, getting there.
2: A day or two day process just to get in. And, and what, what was the experience yeah. like at those at, at, at uh, entering Israel at the border uh, or in, in the West Bank with the checkpoints?
6: Well, yes, it's alienating. Um, we get to the border. They can hold us from uh, two to 12 hours um, for no reason and they don't have to give us reasoning. Um, I mean, we by by definition are third class citizens in our own land. Uh, we, don't, we don't have a right to ask questions um, and we're treated as animals i think that to put it lightly
2: right i mean when you see a video of i mean a palestinian who who wants to who works in israel maybe the, you know the rare palestinian in the west bank it's it's a decreasing number who have work permits to make a living in israel and who have yeah. to travel through a checkpoint maybe you live only a couple miles from the city of jerusalem but you you know it takes several hours and you're forced into a small area right and, and it's yeah. a really humiliating experience um, and, yeah. and real deprivation of basic rights.
6: And you know what's interesting is, uh, like I told you, a uh, minority of my relatives actually hold is Israeli citizenship. It's a privilege that many, not many of us get to have, uh, but Israeli citizens have the freedom to travel freely from sovereign Israeli territories to territories of the West Bank uh, that are designated for Palestinian residents, like uh, me and my family, while us Palestinians who hold West Bank IDs are restricted to those small areas that Israeli citizens also have access to. So, I mean, if you look at it, it is modern-day segregation. Uh, I think that's the only way... I can
2: put it right, and and even we have organizations now, increasingly Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Israel's largest uh, human rights organization, B'Tselem, have been repeating what Palestinians have been saying for decades, which is that it's an apartheid system, and that and that includes inside of Israel, I think, too. Right? Can you talk about some of the the unequal status and the and the discrimination that maybe some of your relatives that actually live inside the state of Israel experience?
6: Uh, yeah. So, for example, my cousin, I can actually talk about uh, what one of my cousins is facing currently uh, with everything going on. Um, I'm not going to name her, um, but she, she, uh, for her safety, but she traveled to Italy prior to October 7th and was there when all of this uh, occurred. so she decided to post, as the Palestinian genocide continues, she decided to post a, an Instagram post uh, showing sympathy with Palestinian civilians in Gaza. Uh, and when she did that, her father, who is still in Nazareth, um, a city under uh, Israeli authority, considered an Israeli city, uh, he was called to an Israeli police station and told that they have a warrant out for her daughter, for his daughter's arrest, and she needs to come to the station immediately. Wow. He told them he's out of the country. And since then, since then, uh, because of the numerous allegations of, of torture being committed to uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel in prisons for, for mere Instagram posts, she has been going country to country. She's currently in Amman, Jordan, waiting for this uh this war to end so she can go back to her home so she so that government does not have the right to take her into custody and and possibly uh harm her
2: so Um, her her feeling is that if she if she goes home after the fighting ends that there's less of a chance that she'll have to face this persecution yeah yeah
6: so she's waiting it out until she feels safe to come back right um it's really disgusting. And I think it it uh, thwarts the claim that there is free speech in Israel, that it's a democracy where everyone can, can voice their opinion when that really just isn't the case.
2: Right. You know, when I when I was first learning about Israel, uh, something that I, I believed that I was taught as as a Zionist, as someone who wanted the state of Israel to exist, was that there was this bad thing. That was the occupation of the West Bank and that there, if Israel didn't have a two-state solution, didn't withdraw from the West Bank and create a Palestinian state, that you would have settlers and uh, Palestinians living uh, with each other in unequal fashion in a permanent way. It was always thought of as sort of temporary. And, and if it was permanent, Israel would cease to be democratic and become an apartheid state. But what I don't think I was fully taught about is is that it's not just the West Bank. Um, Israel exercises, as we're seeing, I mean, it obviously exercises control over Gaza. They're controlling uh, whether food, water goes in, uh, whether there's any electricity in Gaza. And of course, they're, they're bombing it um, ruthlessly. But even inside of Israel, uh, this, this kind of discrimination where in a moment of repression, in a moment of war, uh, for something as simple as a social media post, you're talking about a family member of yours being called into a police station that's 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 a mark of repression and and of inequality no absolutely yeah. Well, uh, in some of the time we have left, because you are a Palestinian student and we hear so much about what goes on on college campuses. I met you uh, when I was involved in the organization J Street U, fighting against uh, support for the occupation in the Jewish community at the University of Miami, but was always really sad to see uh, through a combination of, of outright censorship from the university and uh, just general uh fear of, of the powerful uh, pro-Israel Jewish community on campus, that there, there wasn't really a public Palestinian, pro-Palestinian voice on campus that was led by Palestinians. But it sounds like since October 7th, some students have stood up, including you, and have decided to change that. And I just want to hear more about what was your process? What, what made you decide to come out publicly? And what and what can you tell our listeners about what you've been involved in on campus?
6: Uh, yeah, so I'd say the climate on campus wasn't always the best prior to October 7th. And even after October 7th, it's just become even more clear, um, how unwelcome, how unwelcoming, uh, the campus environment is for Palestinian and Arab students. Um, and prior, uh, I mean, after October 7th, we saw, um, I'm obviously uh, the attack on Israeli civilians, uh, which is horrible, and we saw the university uh, unequivocally stand in support of Israel. And then we started seeing uh, days and weeks later uh, the the killing of thousands of Palestinian civilians, and Palestinian students did not get an email from from uh, our administrators. Uh, sharing their support for us and uh, saying how they stand with Palestinian students. And we sort of kind of felt underrepresented. We were hitting two, 3,000 Palestinian civilian deaths. And we were getting another email from President Frank saying he stands with Israel, with giving no mention to the Palestinian deaths. And um, I think that was even more intimidating uh, to Palestinian and Arab students. And it kind of pushed us to the side and, and we were kind of scared to speak out because we know our administration stance and students were scared of the repercussions or being shut down. Um, and I sort of got to a point where I'm like, this is not right. Um, I, I can't just sit idly by without giving a voice to my people. So I decided to to organize a vigil, um, not only uh, to mourn the losses of the Palestinian civilians, but also the Israeli civilians. Um, we, I made sure to include a imam, a priest, and a rabbi to pray for all of the civilian deaths, and also give a space to Palestinian students where we can, we can fly our flag and mourn our losses and have a space where we sort of feel welcome and Honestly, to my surprise, we had over, we had hundreds of people attend. Uh, We had an outpouring of support, which just showed the, specifically from like minority student organizations, uh, like specifically the uh, black and brown community. Um, It just showed that we are supported on campus, maybe not by high level administrators, but the students support Palestine and the students stand uh, with the Palestinian people, and it really, really touched my heart.
2: Yeah, it, it's really, really moving to see that when there's a space given for that kind of solidarity on campus, when Palestinian students are given a voice, that people do show up. You said that that it was actually an opportunity for you to feel a little bit more welcome on campus. I'm curious if you can say more about that and and. What 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 was the response of the administration to this event, and and had you previously felt welcome as a Palestinian student on campus before some of this?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, I'd say that our our administrators were keeping a close eye on the event I had organized it, um, and and spoken to them prior, so that we could get the proper. Authorization to have the event on campus. Uh, they were definitely asking a lot of questions and wanted to make sure that um, I I wasn't planning on saying certain things that didn't uh, meet their values. Um, but I I I do think that um, that they I don't know. Th- Our campus had never been a welcoming space. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't stopped by by their uh, kind of speculation. Um, I mean, prior to October 7th, I've had students get called into the administrator's offices and ask, um, like or questioned about their Palestinian identity. For example, I have a friend I'm not going to name, uh, not going to name names, uh, but she made an Instagram post one criticizing Israel and criticizing the uh, IDF sponsorship on campus. There was a table in sponsoring the IDF. And she was called into the dean of students office and um, asked to make an apology. Um, See, I don't think that would happen to Israeli students. I think we are made to feel um, that we must censor ourselves. There are several staff members at the university who have been uh, spoken to by administrators and told to censor their speech and censor their edu- uh, educating students on, on certain topics related to Palestine. So this is nothing new at the university.
2: Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. Um, it's it and, and and it and it comes to some extent from uh, you know I think it's so important as we as we talk about Israel Palestine to understand that Judaism and support for the state of Israel or support for the Zionist project for Zionism they're not the same thing, but the project of people who support Israel is to make it such that people believe that it's the same thing, so that if you uh, speak out for Palestinian rights, if you speak out against the project of Zionism and for a project of equality where Jews aren't privileged over others, they're going to say that you're actually violating something that's fundamental to Judaism, that you're anti-Semitic. And on a campus like the University of Miami in Florida, let's just put everybody there. This is a campus uh, with uh, about 20% Jewish students, overwhelmingly uh, pro-Israel views among those students who are publicly Involved in Jewish community on campus, and and the level of casual anti-Palestinian racism or omission of Palestinians in the conversation, either just blind support for Israel without talking about Palestinians, or if we do talk about Palestinians, not hearing from them directly, or uh, it's just it's just really striking. And and then as soon as a Palestinian student even wants to host a single event. Uh, you talk about these experiences or or make an Instagram post, just like inside of Israel, you talk about this experience of going to the dean. Ramsey, do you want to tell the story in the time that we have left just to illustrate how hostile these environments can be for Palestinian students on campus about about uh, Bassem Eid, uh, this uh, a Palestinian who came to the University of Miami?
6: Whoa. Oh, yes. Um, you were there. I remember that. Um, well... Uh, the the student support Israel on campus had decided to host uh, an event where they brought a speaker, Palestinian Eid, who's a, a self uh, proclaimed Palestinian, uh, pro Israel Palestinian, who came to speak uh, at the University of Miami. They had him flown out uh, all the way from the Middle East uh, to to um, make this event and. He was uh, making numerous claims that Israel is a free and equal society for all. Um, I decided to stand up in, in the middle of the, the room where I'm sure he had no clue there would be any Palestinians. Um, and I asked him a simple question uh, which he failed to to answer and that was how can you justify the fact that there are Palestinians and is Israelis living side by side in cities in the West Bank, like Hebron, Hebron City, where Israeli settlers and West Bank Palestinians live together in the same city, but are held at two separate legal systems where your neighbor is who is an Israeli um, Jewish settler is given all rights under Israeli civil law, uh, has the right to vote in the government that controls their lives, while I, as a West Bank Palestinian, am held under Israeli martial law with virtually no rights. How is that justifiable? And he was up on the podium stuttering. Mm -hmm. um, And I started to see in in my fellow students' faces, who are Jewish students at the University of Miami, sort of questioning themselves and sort of kind of like thinking about how, how wrong that is. Um, And I I thought that um, it just shows that when you look at that, you'll see that there is inequality. Um, There is injustice.
2: It was really brave. You know, you went to the, it was an event. I was there too at the university of Miami Hillel um, that they put on and that maybe, For some people, the first time that they've talked to a Palestinian student or Palestinian at all, and they're hearing from the one Palestinian that they could find that wants to talk about how everything that Israel does was right. Uh, A particular thing that I remember you saying in that moment uh, was that uh, Bassam Eid had said, Palestinians need to focus on dignity over identity. And you said to him, that you were taught that dignity is identity. Um, and that's that's always stuck with me uh, when you've said that, um, because uh, I, I understand it as a Jewish person. Uh, you, you couldn't tell me, well, if you just focus on making a good living for yourself, but get rid of your Jewish identity, everything will be fine. That would be a betrayal of, of my dignity um, and, and a betrayal of, of Palestinian dignity to do the same um, and and I hope that as more people start to understand the fundamental reality that occurs on the ground in Israel-Palestine, not just in Gaza, but in the West Bank with this apartheid system, that we'll have more and more people speaking out, understanding that it actually doesn't keep the Jewish people safe um, to keep the Palestinian people under their thumb. And we're so thankful to you, Ramsey Shahada, for joining us today on the Santita Jackson Show. Uh, yeah, we'll be cool. back in a moment. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to hear Palestinian student perspectives. Uh, We'll be back with Peter Beinart after the hour. We
0: can change the world, change the world, change the world. We can can change the world, we can change the world, change the world.
1: This is the Santita Jackson Show. To a
0: place of love, it's not too late. Gotta save the children.
2: Everybody and welcome into the Santita Jackson Show. My name is Jonah Karsh filling in for Santita today. I am the political lead at If Not Now Chicago. We are an organization of American Jews working to end us support for israel's apartheid system and move towards justice equality and a thriving future for all palestinians and israelis really thankful to have built a relationship with Ms. jackson over the last few months uh have been on the show a few times and i'm honored to be guest hosting today uh in just a moment we're going to be talking with editor-at-large of jewish currents peter beinart uh, who's going to take us through some of the common talking points that we're hearing From the establishment and the right on Israel. But first, uh, I want to get to some headlines. The state of Maine's Secretary of State, Shanna Bellows, ruled Thursday that former President of the United States Donald Trump is ineligible to appear on the state's primary election ballot under the 14th Amendment because of his role in the January 6th insurrection. Later uh, yesterday, California's Secretary of State joined Michigan's Supreme Court in making the opposite decision. While the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling that Trump is ineligible for that state's ballot has been appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Israel's brutal attack on Gaza continues. Al Jazeera reports today on site from the southernmost city of Rafah in Gaza that an Israeli airstrike hit a residential building near the Kuwait Specialty Hospital, killing 20 people, most of them women and children. Meanwhile, at least 35 Palestinians were reportedly killed in bombings targeting two refugee camps in central Gaza, And the head of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency said the Israeli army fired at one of the organization's aid convoys driving on a designated safe road in northern Gaza. This comes as the organization warns that 40 percent of Gaza residents are at risk of famine. Over 21,500 Palestinians in Gaza and around 1,300 Israelis have died since the war began on October 7th. And a U.S. district court judge in Georgia ruled that the state's newly drafted congressional maps do comply with the previous court order to create a black majority district in areas where black voters power was being diluted. But in complying with that order, the Republican controlled legislature cut up an existing majority black district, which maintains the state's projected nine to five Republican advantage in the House of Representatives. Voting rights groups have said they will appeal the decision. Uh, Weather in Chicago, it's rainy this morning. Be careful out on the roads. We got a high of 41 degrees. And in Minneapolis, it's partly cloudy with a high of 35. Speaking of which, you are listening to WCPT AM 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, and AM 950, the voice of progressive Minnesota. Uh, Pacers 120, Bulls 104 in basketball last night, and the Timberwolves beat the Mavericks 118-110. Tonight at 7, the Blackhawks face the Stars in Dallas. And tomorrow at 1, it's the Wild versus the Winnipeg Jets. In football on Sunday, Bears-Falcons at noon. And at 7.20 p.m., it'll be Vikings-Packers from the Twin Cities. All right. Uh, We are so fortunate this morning to be joined by editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, journalism professor at the City University of New York Journalism School, and an MSNBC analyst, as well as uh, the author of the Beinart Notebook on Substack, which I recommend. Folks, subscribe to uh, Peter Beinart. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.
7: My pleasure.
2: Uh, Great to have you. Um, I first uh, met you when you came to the University of Miami campus, where I was uh, involved in the J Street U chapter there, focused on uh, Jewish communal support for the occupation on my campus. And one of the things that really appealed to me about you is that you uh, come from uh, Jewish communities where sometimes there is support or apology, apologetics for the occupation. And you're really good at thinking through the way the Jewish pro-Israel community thinks and and some of the talking points that they might have uh, absorbed and really good at cutting through that and getting to the heart of some of the moral issues, which is why I really wanted to have you on and talk about some of what we're hearing. Um, one question that I wanted to start with was, uh, you know, there's all this talk about uh, the need for a ceasefire uh, in Israel and Gaza. Of course, that's my position. That's your position that we need a ceasefire as soon as possible to save lives. Um, but an but, uh, argument that we're often hearing is that there was a ceasefire on October 6th, and Hamas broke it. Um, what do you say to people who say that and don't trust that Hamas will uphold their end of a ceasefire?
7: Right. So I think the first thing is that um, to, it's important to make it clear that what Hamas did on October 7th was horrifying. It was clearly a war crime. Um, to, to, to purposely kill uh, innocent civilians, including the very young and the very old, including sexual violence—these are these are war crimes that should not be excused by anybody. Um, the problem, though, with um, the problem, though, with saying that we're with, with, with talking about the ceasefire that existed before October. Sixth was that it imagined that this was a stable situation. It wasn't a stable situation. Um, when people, we, we, people might imagine a ceasefire between two different countries, but Palestinians don't have their own country. Palestinians in the West Bank live under military occupation. They live under the domination of the Israeli government, even though they can't be citizens of Israel, they can't vote for the government that controls their lives, they don't have free movement. Uh, and the Palestinians in Gaza live under a blockade that according to the United Nations has made that territory. This was before October 7th, made it unlivable for human beings, which the Human Rights Watch has called an open-air prison because Israel, with some help from Egypt, controls everything that comes in and out. Um, so this was never a sustainable situation. There are ethical ways to resist this kind of oppression and there are unethical ways like the the Hamas did on October 7th. But to believe that Palestinians were simply going to accept some kind of any Palestinian, some permanent ceasefire in a situation where they were living under what the world's human rights leading human rights organizations and even Israel's human rights organizations have called apartheid was just not realistic. It wasn't a sustainable situation. You had to deal with the underlying political grievances of the people who were denied basic human rights.
2: Absolutely. And something that uh, that it's clear, obviously, that there there's a huge human rights uh, inequity in Israel-Palestine a system uh, that... The Israel's largest human rights organization, B'Tselem, in addition to Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, have called apartheid, not only in the West Bank, but all throughout uh, the state of Israel and Gaza. Um, but there are many people that understand Hamas as a unique threat that that needs to be uh, completely eliminated by the state of Israel, that you can talk about the fundamental inequality, but that you can't make peace as long as Hamas remains in power. And as a condition of their remaining in power. Hamas is not doesn't seem likely to willingly give that up. They recently rejected a a framework that Egypt put forward uh, for a ceasefire, which would involve them leaving power. Um, And and I guess there's a sense among many people that are supporters of Israel, um, that that leaving Hamas in power only will lead to more violence down the line only will lead to more October seventh, more death and destruction, and and won't keep Jews safe. Can can you speak to that fear? Um, I also want to add that you that you had a great uh, podcast uh, on Jewish Currents called On the Nose, where you had two uh, Palestinians, Khalil Sayeg and Mohammed Shahada, both of whom are from Gaza, and talked to them about about their experience of growing up under the rule of Hamas. Um, but but what 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 are people missing in the Jewish community? Uh, In in what context are they missing about Hamas's rise to power? And what do you say to those who are fearful about Hamas remaining in power uh, with all the terrible things that they've done?
7: think one of the things that's really important about listening to Palestinians, which is not something I think, unfortunately, that kind of establishment Jewish institutions do very much, is that I literally have not heard a single Palestinian commentator that I know, uh, that, I, you know, um, suggest that they think that Israel war God Gaza is going to make Israelis more safe. And I think the reason that Palestinians don't believe that um, is that this conflict long predates Hamas. Um, it is it, it, We can understand that Hamas has done horrifying things, even before October 7th, the suicide bombings they conducted in the 1990s and in, in, in the 2000s, um, that they have an illiberal Islamist agenda that's fundamentally antithetical to kind of the liberal democratic values that I cherish. But Hamas was created in 1987. Um, Actually, ironically, when it was created, Israel kind of favored it over the nationalist PLO and the leftist Palestinian faction. And the reason, part of the reason was that Palestinians had been fighting against Israel long long before Hamas including with violence against civilians right if we think back to the 1970s which was a period where there was a lot of Palestinian violence against Israeli civilians famously notoriously airplane hijackings the Munich massacre the Munich Olympic massacre the lot massacre none of those were were carried out by Hamas or by Islamists at all Hamas didn't exist they were carried out by nationalist and leftist Palestinian factions the point i'm making is the Palestinian the, the, the impetus for Palestinians to resist their oppression would c- c- existed long before Hamas and would exist long after Hamas, if Israel were even able to destroy Hamas. Uh, because people who lack basic rights, who lack basic dignity, are going to fight back. So to me, the important question is really whether you create incentives for people who are being oppressed to resist in an ethical way, in a way that, re- that, that conforms to international law, that respects the preciousness and safety of all life? That's the really important question that Israel should be thinking about. Because you could destroy Hamas, and what many Palestinians think is that you would get some other organization which would be which would which will be filled with. People who want revenge for the massive carnage that Israel's created in Gaza, and do people think those people, those that group, wouldn't fight Israel and wouldn't try to k- kill Israelis? What I think Americans and Israelis should be thinking about is. How do we strengthen Palestinians who want to use nonviolent tactics, like boycotts, like going to the United Nations, like going to the International Criminal Court? How do we support Palestinians who, make, who say that it's wrong to kill innocent to civilians? And what Israel and America have done is really the opposite. We have essentially defeated, even criminalized, not to mention demonized, every nonviolent a Palestinian effort at resistance, every Palestinian effort that is in accordance with international law, and thus we've strengthened Hamas. And if you don't deal with that fundamental problem, then even if you could get rid of Hamas, which many people doubt, there's no reason to believe, especially given the horror that Israel has now created in Gaza, that you would get anything better and that you would make Israel any safer.
2: I want, I want to hit on, on something that I heard you say about, about uh, you know of course Palestinians have agency Palestinians are also oppressed and you talked about uh, Israel creating incentive structures for for Palestinians to feel like they have a path to nonviolent resistance and I don't I don't want to impose on Palestinians what's appropriate although of course I don't support war crimes but what what does that look like I, I guess I don't see a scenario after the war where Israel all of a sudden gets up and says you uh, yeah, you want to boycott us, that's great. Or you want to go to the United Nations and sanction us like we, we're not going to object. Um, what, what, it, you know In a, in a realistic world, is, the, is there a path that you can see where the government of Israel might actually come to some terms and maybe isn't, isn't supporting tactics of the left that you and I might be more in support of, but, but is coming to a place where, where they're creating some of those incentives that you were talking about, or at least not actively trampling on them?
7: I think it makes more sense at this point to think about what the United States could do um, and, and how that ultimately might change politics in Israel uh, as well as among Palestinians. So the United Nations, the United States has, has blocked for many, many years virtually every Palestinian effort at the United Nations. The United States has virtually basically essentially declared kind of war almost on the International Criminal Court to ensure that the International Criminal Court never begins investigations of Israel's uh, of of Israel's kind of war crimes against Palestinians, the um, American state and have have essentially criminalized efforts to boycott uh, Israel. So that is, I think, something that America can do. What, one of the one of the reasons Hamas has grown in popularity is that Mahmoud Abbas is the Palestinian leader in the West Bank, who essentially has pursued a collaborationist strategy with Israel. He said, OK, we're going to help Israel prevent Palestinian resistance in the West Bank and therefore reassure Israel that the Palestinians can be trusted with their own country because we're showing that we're willing to keep Israel. Safe, even without a country, will start doing so. And America has, with Israel, has made him look like a chump because basically, far, far, far from the strategy moving Palestinians closer to their own state, it's moved them further away because Israel has never stopped settlement growth, and the United States has kept funding that settlement growth. So, this is, we are very far away, I think, from a just peace in Israel and Palestine. But I think what America can start to do is send a really different message that will be heard by by Palestinians as well as Israelis, that we are going to be an active support of Palestinians who resist ethically. One of the things that I wrote about a while back, and soon after October 7th, was about the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. And the African National Congress led by Nelson Mandela it was not a nonviolent organization. It used armed resistance against the apartheid, but it really, it worked pretty hard to try to avoid uh, going after civilians, and what I argued was one of the reasons that the ANC was able to hold that moral that moral position was that it showed that it was getting support from the world. It saw that the anti-apartheid movement was succeeding, that the U.S. Congress was passing sanctions, and that made it easier for it to stick to ethical resistance because it saw that ethical resistance was working. We need to try to move towards that virtuous dynamic in Israel Palestine too.
2: Right. Uh, we're talking with Peter Beinart, editor at large of Jewish Currents, um, speaking, speaking of some of those things that the United States might do to impose consequences on Israel for for its actions in Gaza, for continued occupation, and, and for uh, a complete unwillingness to, to think about how uh, they might improve the daily lives of Palestinians and, and create a path towards self-determination. What uh, President Biden doesn't seem to be super keen on some of these consequences. We're seeing some of the biggest efforts ever uh, in in the Senate and the, uh, with Senator Bernie Sanders putting forward. Uh, he, it looks like after the new year, he'll be forcing a vote on some conditions to U.S. military aid to Israel. As well as uh, 13 senators have put forward, uh, Democrats have put forward an initiative. To to put some restrictions on that aid. But President Biden uh, called it called it a worthwhile thought in a press conference, but it hasn't really gone further. What what's your read on on the ideology that President Biden is operating with and, and why he's not in the same place of thinking that that you can uh, restrain Israel with consequences?
7: I don't think President Biden has ever really, it's funny, because he's so famous for his empathy, but for whatever reason, it doesn't seem that his life experience or his worldview has, has really allowed him to really identify with Palestinians, to see them as fully human um, and to, uh, to, to to in the way that he is able with, to with Israeli Jews and, and others. Um, and I think, and I also think he comes from an era you know he's been in politics for a very long time he comes for an era when questioning unconditional u.s support for israel was just political kryptonite and i think that because of those things he's unable to uh to to kind of to respond to the kind of the the at a human level to the kind of the horror of this mass slaughter, which is gonna go down as one of the greatest slaughters of the 21st century, um, which is being committed with U.S. weapons in large case. And it's also unable, I think, to understand that the politics in the Democratic Party are really shifting, and means that he doesn't need to be locked in to to unconditional support for Israel. As you said, we have seen since October 7th a a, a real dramatic expansion of the number of Democrats in Congress who are willing to talk about conditioning aid, something which which almost nobody supported in Congress before October 7th. So there is a real shift happening in the Democratic Party. The tragedy is that instead of Joe Biden taking advantage and leading that shift, he's largely standing in the way of it.
2: Mm Mm-hmm so so what what is your vision with this biden administration how, how does this end um israel has indicated uh that that this could go on for months um reports yesterday that there was going to be a war cabinet meeting to discuss a post-war strategy for gaza uh in israel and and right-wing members that are not part of the war cabinet right-wing members of the israeli parliament the knesset uh made a fuss to prime minister netanyahu who then canceled the meeting Uh, How how, how does this end? How does if if President Biden isn't willing to impose consequences, does Israel just sort of leave on its own terms? Does President Biden decide as the election year gets going that that this is just too much of a political weight to carry on his shoulders and and the pressure ratchets up? What what, what, um, not not to predict the future, but what's your analysis of of some of some scenarios in which maybe we can get some hope and see an end to this just devastating carnage?
7: I think unless the United States and other countries, European countries and others um, start to, in um, meaningful, tangible ways, force Israel to stop, that um, I don't think this will end anytime soon. Israeli leaders are talking about this continuing for many more months. Now, it may not take the same form there may be a smaller Israeli military footprint in Gaza but it seems likely that the the fighting in Gaza could last many 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 more months Um, and we also have had a whole series of Israeli leaders who have talked about uh, one a, a goal of theirs being the mass expulsion of Palestinians from Gaza into Egypt so far the Egyptians have held firm and refused that happening but that is one potential horrifying scenario here. There's also been talk in the last couple of days by very, very senior Israeli officials of Israel opening up another front in the north, in Lebanon, uh, where it faces Hezbollah, uh, a Lebanese Shia militia um, that, with which it's been trading rocket fire and and which has a much, much larger arsenal than Hamas. So it's, it's quite possible this war could massively expand um, uh, in a new front that would actually have much more devastating effects on Israel than even what we've seen so far and potentially bring in other regional actors. So the, the, the Biden administration, I think really, it kind of is trying to wish this war away. It's trying to kind of keep asking in the nicest uh, way it can to the Israeli, to the Israeli government to stop because it fears the political consequences at home and it fears the international consequences in the Middle East. But I just don't think that's going to cut it. The Biden administration is going to have to have some kind of showdown, confrontation with Netanyahu, which ultimately simply says, we're not going to keep giving you the money and the weapons to prosecute this war. If it doesn't, I think the war will continue in potentially horrifying ways.
2: And with uh, 20 seconds left, you know, that we are seeing these horrifying ways, but we're also talking about how we can be uplifting nonviolent resistance, because we understand that if Palestinians aren't given a way to resist nonviolently, they may turn to violence and we might not support it. Um, But that but that but that's what happens when you don't give people options. What is giving you hope in the nonviolent movement, either at home or abroad?
7: So there's a group inside Israel called Omdin Biyahad standing together, that brings together Israeli Jews and Palestinians. Uh, they've been, they've been under extremely difficult circumstances and doing really, really inspiring things. And I'm also inspired by the things I see in the United States by, by mass movements of young American Jews like yourself and Palestinians and people of good conscience from all different backgrounds were are coming together to say that Um, never again means never again for anybody, that we don't want a world uh, in which Israeli Jews are slaughtered. We don't want a world in which Palestinians are slaughtered, that there has to be a ceasefire and there ultimately has to be freedom for Palestinians if Palestinians and Israeli Jews are going to be safe.
2: Peter Beinart, thank you so much for joining us. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a moment.
1: This is The Santita Jackson Show.
2: Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Santita Jackson Show. My name is Jonah Karsh. I'm the political lead for If Not Now Chicago, an organization of American Jews working to end U.S. support for Israel's apartheid system and work towards justice, equality, and a thriving future for all Palestinians and Israelis. I'm filling in for Santita today. We're live here on 820 a.m. WCPT, the nation's largest progressive talk station, uh, progressive talk station, and 950 a.m. Minnesota, the voice of progressive Minnesota in Minneapolis, St. Paul. We've spent the last 90 minutes or so talking about Israel's war in Gaza, uh, the genocidal campaign that we're seeing going on, and the open calls for ethnic cleansing of the Israeli government uh, it's really horrifying, and and it makes me think about mental health. Um, talking about these things, I'm, I'm not not to mention being in the midst of them for those who are who are in Gaza, um, is is really really traumatizing. Um, and and for that trauma, we need public structures of care that can treat people. Unfortunately, in the United States, we don't often invest in that kind of in those public goods in public care. Um, but there's a campaign in the city of Chicago called Treatment Not Trauma. My good friend, Elena Gormley, who is the co-chair of the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America, as well as a member of the Treatment Not Trauma Coalition, is joining us. And we're also here with a uh, longtime guest social scientist Dwight McKee, who's going to chime in with his own thoughts as well. Um, Elena, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, what our listeners should know about how Chicago historically has disinvested in mental health.
4: Uh, Good morning. Uh, Thank you, Jenna. Thank you for having me. Can you all hear me? Yes, we can. Fantastic. Uh, So, yes, my name is Elena, I'm a social worker, Um, I think, Jonah, you really framed this really well. Um, What um, the Collaborative for Community Wellness, which has been around for a really long time and is the coalition really driving treatment, out trauma, has published so many research reports is that in Chicago, access to care is the greatest barrier over stigma. Throughout Chicago, we have done an excellent, excellent job at fighting the stigma of facing mental health challenges and needing support, but what we do not have are, is an equitable access um, if you do not have insurance or if your insurance is through Medicaid, it is really, really difficult to find a therapist. Um, and you typically have to go through the nonprofit community mental health system and all and every single nonprofit agency that provides mental health support. They're facing really significant wait lists. And what happened is under the daily administration and under the Emanuel administration, you really saw a systemic really targeted closure of public chicago department of public health um, mental health centers um, most of these closures um, these were citywide. Um, i'm up in rogers park we lost the howard clinic uh, during the the emmanuel wave of closures but a lot of the um, highest volume of closures happened in the south and west sides where there is even less of a um, Structure of nonprofit or private practice practitioners that can that can take appointments, um, and so that's really what happened and the city really justified this by saying um well it's an inefficient system people don't like them nonprofits can do this better we'll just take our our uh, cdph funds and support the nonprofit centers they can provide more personalized care it was really was um, a lot of reagan era neoliberal rhetoric um and what happened is that people lo- People really permanently lost access to care, and the nonprofits that were expected to really take up this volume of new patients have not been able to meet the need.
2: Dwight McKee, you're somebody who's who's been in the movement for justice uh, for black Chicago, for all Chicago, for all people for, for decades, and I think you, you have a particular perspective on – some of the uh, what happens, uh, having lived through the Reagan era, when we systemically disinvest in our communities, can can you talk about what you've seen in your community um, around this? Well,
1: thank you, your Honor. Uh Yeah, what has happened is the irony is that treatment has gone down as trauma has gone up, and exponentially on both sides, and which has created more trauma. Because those who have not sought treatment got on the on the traumatizing side of the society, and so situations like what's hap- what happened in the schools, where when Reagan was in uh, the president, school shootings were you know kind of at a relative minimum. Now have exploded exponentially because those people then didn't get help, didn't get treatment other uh, students didn't, the teachers didn't. And you see even college professors now are shooting their uh, companions and their compatriots because they have not been able to deal with the trauma of maybe losing a job or not getting a job. You see what's happening in, in internationally on the war side, uh, where babies are getting killed and seniors are getting uh, abducted, and that trauma is created because of no treatment. A whole another level of traumatized people who are, you know, in the streets or uh, creating this backlash of anti-Semitism or anti-Islamophobia. Uh, you see these kids in, in in the inner city, which is not spread to the suburbs where the way they they deal with just a a magic, a a, a, a minor traffic infraction creates road rage, where even on the the, the expressways, uh, you pass somebody the wrong way, they pull out a gun and start shooting at you or shooting you. I mean, so the disproportionality of treatment being at a minimum and trauma being at a maximum is creating really a, a crisis in society of uh, of almost biblical proportions when you look at every single uh, dynamic of culture and what's happening with with, 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 with it.
2: Absolutely, and and um, yeah, we uh, we we have seen it. Just feels like you know, a couple times a month at least. Just some news about about the most recent mass shooting in the United States, and of course, that's a gun problem. We we need we need to get guns off uh, off the open market, uh, have better gun laws. But it's also true that you know this this kind of thing. And while it is a very specific kind of person that might do something like this, that's that there is a, a, a mental health component. It, it wouldn't happen if they didn't have the guns. But it is an extreme example of a mental health crisis that we have in our society that sometimes has people turn to violence, or even for those who don't turn to violence that just need help, that that don't wanna be, that only have, uh, if there's a crisis at their house, only have the police to call. And, and, And we know so often in black and brown communities that the police don't keep us safe. They can only often further exacerbate that situation. And so I wanna give it back to Elena Gormley from the Treatment Not Trauma Coalition, can you tell us about the proposal that your coalition has put forward to to start to address some of this systemic inequity around mental health that we've seen?
4: Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, I, I want to very briefly piggyback um, because I work on the West Side where so many people um, have been impacted by all kinds of violence. And the thing about, when we're talking about post-traumatic stress and many practitioners uh, locally, Cassie Walker is a has really spoken about this a lot. You see a lot of practitioners and Gaza point this out. The thing about post-traumatic stress is that it, it means that something bad happened and it's no longer happening. Um, and I think what we're really seeing is we're seeing it actually a, a really sort of a type of trauma where there is no break, so there is no chance to pause, assess and recover. Um, and so that is really why um, having non-police um, crisis response that is citywide and some of the other things that Treatment Not Trauma is fighting for are so important. Uh, so in short, um, uh, Treatment Not Trauma um, was a package of proposals um, originally introduced in 2020 by uh, 33rd Ward Alder woman, Rosana Rodriguez-Sanchez, who's also a social work student at NEIU. Um, and it's um, really centered in reopening um, the closed public mental health centers. Um, there are five uh, public mental health centers still open. Um, I think one thing people don't realize is they just assume every public clinic was closed, and that's not the case. There's there's five um, that are not nearly enough, but there are five remaining ones, and what we want to do is transform those into 24-7 crisis support centers so that there is a middle step Um, if someone is experiencing crisis and they need extra support they need an assessment they need a space to go to that's outside of whatever situation is very scary and upsetting that's not the emergency room emergency rooms are enormously stressful and not a trauma-informed violent uh, and excuse me a trauma-informed environment if you're experiencing a mental health crisis and then the other, um, the other component is when someone is experiencing a crisis, whether that's you're experiencing a crisis, you have a loved one that's experiencing a crisis, you're, you're seeing someone um, out, you know, maybe out on your stoop or out on your corner that seems to be having a really bad time, that um, you can call and healthcare workers are going to be the first responders and not a cop with a gun um, who has... An enormous amount of power to do violence. And so we want, alongside reopening the centers, 24 hour um, crisis support centers, we want a public, non-police crisis response, um, program that is completely citywide. So no matter where you are, you can call and healthcare workers can, will be that, that, um, first response to, um, uh, respond to what's happening. So that is what we are fighting for. Um, the very exciting thing is we are starting to win parts of this. Um, one thing that Rosanna has said multiple times is she introduced this in fall of 2020 and some of her colleagues in City Hall would just not talk to her anymore. After she proposed this really common sense pa- common sense package of proposals. Now she's the health um, committee commission uh, chair, excuse me, and um, we are starting to see some wins. So, the very exciting thing is in the 2024 budget, we have um, funding allocated to reopen to public mental health centers. Um, We also have a uh, Treatment Not Trauma working group made up of healthcare professionals and directly impacted um, clinic patients um, who are going to be tasked with developing a report on how the city can start to pass and implement the rest of Treatment Not Trauma. Um, So that's kind of what we're fighting for and what we've won in a nutshell.
2: Yeah, and I'd love to, yeah, Dwight McKee, share your thoughts, please.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, and the, the, the truth of the matter is the whole society is on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And it's, it's reflected by suicide rates, that's reflected by the, the drug crises, that's uh, reflected by by the mass violence. And and the fact of the matter is that, that one of the highest suicide rates is with the police. And they have been, they're the ones been called to mitigate uh, mental crises. So you got somebody themselves who are in balance trying to mitigate a situation for other people who are in balance. And so it exacerbates the problem, which is why those situations become out of control, come out of control. you got a, a person that's on the verge of a nervous breakdown himself trying to mitigate crises with somebody who's in the process of a murder of a, of a mental breakdown. And so, uh, it, unless this is dealt with again, it, this is it's going to be, you're going to see a profound collapse in society. You almost can't cut on the news today without being traumatized. I mean, from, from A to Z, every crisis, every, every story is a crisis. And so I, I have to applaud the work and the focus of, uh, People not trauma, because unless we deal with it, unless we reinvest in it, we're gonna see almost a collapse from childhood to to, to old age right. with the people in our society. And this is
2: and this is not only about about preventing some of the crises that we're seeing from exacerbating into into just into into catastrophes, but but about uh, creating uh, the kind of structures of care. Thinking about how we can use government to give us nice things, to, to give us things that are closer to the society that we want to see that are almost utopian in nature. Um, and and Elena, I did want to come back to you to ask about some, some things that sometimes we hear from people who are opponents of treatment, not trauma. I think Dwight did a great job uh, of, of outlining how police uh, often not only are fundamentally escalatory to a situation by bringing a gun to a mental health crisis um, even if they don't end up using it um, although they have at times um, unfortunately uh, but but uh, they're, they're just not equipped they're not mental health professionals they're not equipped to be responding to these crises. and at the same time we live in a society with a lot of guns and and it's possible that you could end up in a mental health crisis with someone who who is armed and and is threatening violence um, what do you say to those who say, "Why would you not bring a police officer to that situation? How can you trust the safety of a mental health professional in that situation?"
4: Um, so. I sometimes will share something a little bit more personal. Um, I grew up in rural West Michigan, where um, firearm, like firearm deer season, was a point where like children would be pulled out of school to go to deer camp, um, where there were lots and lots of firearms, and where um, it was really unspoken and not addressed, where people would be in crisis and would hurt themselves with 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 the firearms, and there was not any kind of communication with family around that risk um, while that risk was there. Um, So I think that, like, some of this, and, of course, part of this was because um, this was a majority, a very overwhelmingly majority white community where people's approaches to guns were very racialized. And so um, I, I bring that up because, like, Firearms are very common kind of all across the U.S. I think sometimes we we assume that this is only an issue in Chicago. And I think that sometimes the way we describe the really serious challenges with guns in Chicago is sometimes not really done in a good faith way. Um, And so many people might have a firearm in their in their house for many different reasons. Um, not all firearms in the house are going to be dangerous, depending on if it's locked up or what the actual tenor of the crisis is. Um, And so, uh, and the real thing that even um, Chicago's own data has shown is that um, they've been running um, a non-police pilot and a police co-responder pilot. And within those pilots, um, the calls that they have been getting have not required police presence. Um, um, most of the time when people are calling with a crisis concern, an immediate threat or access to a weapon is not actually what's going on. Um, and, of course, this the we, thing we have to be really careful about is that under our carceral system, um, if you are thinking through some – if someone's calling with a health care crisis and it's a mental health care crisis, there is an assumption that they're just inherently dangerous and they'll turn anything into a weapon. Um, and so one of the things we just have to be really upfront with is that – um, treating people as if this is a healthcare crisis because it is, is a first step to re- removing a lot of risk, taking the temperature down so that when someone is, you know, trying to reach contact with the family and say, hey, I am from CDPH, I am a healthcare worker, I understand there's a crisis, can we, can, um, can you share what's going on? That really will, you know, take that temperature down, to take that fear down. And I think a lot of it is also some very common sense things. Um, Our our model for um, crisis response is not one clinician just out on their own um, knocking on the door. Um, We really are supporting like having really a team um, focused effort and I think sometimes People just assume that if police are not involved, that this is going to be an austerity model. And what we really want are lots of people responding, um, having open lines of communication. And also, um, one thing that could be really beneficial is that we will need to see some state reforms. Um, One of the reasons why people can be really, really scared, and that's by being scared might shout threatening things or maybe are kind of like, maybe like are really elevated, It's because people are scared that if they've reached out to ask for help, their children might get taken away, Um, they might lose their job, Um, those kinds of things. And so we have to really um, make sure that we have good structures in place to prevent unnecessary child welfare involvement Um, when someone's experiencing crisis. um, We really need to um, have some changes at the state level so that when someone is um, contacting someone, it is—it's um, it, 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 really about de-escalating and getting people to a place where they can decide what choices they want to make, rather than rather than it being really oppositional. And I think some of that—I think some of that happens because people are so used to, well, so the person who, who's responding has a gun and they could kill me. Um, I, the other thing that I have said a lot um, as a social worker is. Social workers were often um, the the faces of people's worst day in their lives. Um, I were on the radio. I will not share some of the things that I've been told by people experiencing the worst day in their lives. The only times that I have felt unsafe is not when a client's having the worst day of their life and maybe shouting, swearing, saying certain things. It's been situations with police or other social workers. I think that we really have to understand that people experiencing a significant amount of pain um, because they're experiencing the worst thing in their lives, they're not the danger. Sometimes the people in power, sometimes the healthcare workers, sometimes the police, those are really where I think a lot of the risks tend to lie and that sometimes is, is a hard thing for even my profession to even admit.
2: Right, we, we want people to come over and be able to help you Um, when, when you're in crisis and if someone is seeking that help, um, why, why do we automatically assume that they're seeking to harm people as well? Um, it's a really insightful point. And, and even, even with some of these cases with guns where, where, you know, perhaps reasonable people can disagree, it just strikes me that it would be good to have this system of care. I remember being in a, uh, constituent meeting, an advocacy meeting with my uh, at, with the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs where I used to be an organizer with a with an alderman and uh, one of one of the people in the meeting mentioned that you know one time my brother was having a mental health crisis and I didn't have anybody to to bring to him I I, I wasn't home my parents weren't home and he needed help and I wished that I could call somebody to have them come over. And my only option was to call the police and they have guns and I didn't want to call the police. What if we had paid for by our taxpayers because our taxpayers want to invest in the thriving of our people, a system where we had mental health professionals, trained clinicians showing up and giving people, as we said, treatment instead of trauma? Uh, Dwight McKee, any final thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, uh, another part of this is a lot of this this. Trauma is coming out of just basic insecurity, where people are food insecure or their housing insecure and uh, their employment insecure. And with these resources being redirected from, uh, you know, peacetime activities to, to war, there's less resources to invest in just basic stuff like housing and food. and the breakdown of these, some of the social institutions like the churches, there are no communities that can offer the emotional support or the, the uh, resource support that basic people need. Uh, when You see situations like when a Willie Wilson pays for gas, you see luxury cars lined up for blocks and blocks because people don't have enough money for gas. A lot of people don't have money for housing. the housing shortage is amazing. People can't afford not to buy housing or even the rent is 60 percent of the money that some people are making. Uh, food insecurity. A lot of these young people the only time they get a the chance to eat is if they get prepared the in school. In the summer they have real a lot don't have a lot of options to eat. A lot of these seniors don't have the resources to buy their medicine. And so they wake up every morning trying to figure out, are they going to eat or be able to buy the medicine they need to deal with their uh, illnesses? And so I say that to say that some of this can be resolved not just by uh, mental health specialists, which we need, but also by investing in the fundamental uh, things that people need to live to survive and to thrive. Yes,
2: that's right
1: and, to, uh, and and so if you would take a lot of these resources we put in the war and put them into support services, you see a, a, a portion of this mental of these mental health issues and this, these mental breakdowns go down. We really need to go to a more peacetime, more productive economy than to spend all our money on bombs and and missiles.
2: That's right. And yes, the wealth inequality, the spending of our taxpayer money on war, all and and the poverty, mass poverty, economic inequality that we see is itself a mental health crisis and the source of mental health crises. Elena Gormley, uh, in the 20 seconds that we have left, how can people get involved in treatment, not trauma?
4: Uh, Yes, Uh, go to uh, collaborativeforcommunitywellness.org, all one word. Uh, There is an interest form you can uh, reach out, and Ani Humani, our staff organizer, uh, will get in touch with opportunities to get immediately plugged into the campaign.
2: Thank you so much. That's collaborative for communitywellness.org. Elena Gormley from the Treatment Not Trauma Coalition. Social scientist Dwight McKee. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the Santita Jackson Show. Uh, Santita will be back next week. Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks so much.